بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا ما يحفه الله فلا مضل له وما يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد فإن أحسن الكلام كلام الله خير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وإن شر الأمور محتفاتها وكل محتفة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار uh, So today we resume our uh, series of lessons on uh, the short lectures from Sheikh Ubaid al-Jabri حفظه الله تعالى on miscellaneous topics and today's topic is titled Al-Asal في العادات والمعاملات which is what is the basic rule what is the basic principle regarding habits and customs and dealings and likewise worship right so there is acts of worship al-ibadat that pertain to the worship of Allah azawajal and then there are the mu'amalat mu'amalat which are our dealings with other people, uh, things like trade, marriage, contracts, you know, things of that nature. And also al-adat, these are habits and customs that you find, you know, in your society, in your culture, in your nation. So what is the basic rule concerning all of these things? This is the topic that the Sheikh Hafizahullah is, is discussing in this uh, short uh, lecture and the Shaykh covers some other uh, related points as well and uh, so this is going to be our topic today so the Shaykh begins after praising Allah Azza wa Jal and sending Salat and Salam upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he says that there is a principle foundational principle which the scholars mention and they have derived this principle from the texts of the book and the sunnah and likewise from the action of the righteous salaf and this principle is composed of two parts uh, the first the first part is regarding al-ibadat and the second part is regarding al-adat wal-mu'amalat so as we, as we explained, that there is worship on the one hand. What's the basic rule, basic principle regarding acts of worship? How do we approach them? And what is the basic rule for everything else? Which would be mu'amalat, dealings, and al-adat, which are you know, the customs and habits and you know, things that, that are found within the society. So the Sheikh is going to address the first part of this principle. And so he says that فَالْجُزْءُ الْأَوَّلْ مِنْ هَذِهِ الْقَاعِدَةِ مَا قَرَّرَهُ الْأَئِمَّةِ مِنْ أَنَّ الْأَصَلْ فِي الْعِبَادَاتِ الْحَذَرْ إِلَّا So he says the first part of this principle is what the scholars have established that the basic rule regarding acts of worship is prohibition. 
and caution, except with a text. So when you approach anything that is an act of worship, what's the basic principle you start off with? What's the basic principle at the very beginning that you start off with? And the principle is that all acts of worship are prohibited, they are unlawful, they are false, they are invalid. Right? This is the basic principle you start off with. Illa binassin. Except with a text. Except with a text. And this is because, as the Sheikh explains, وَمَا ذَلِكُمْ إِلَّا لِأَنَّ الْإِبَادَاتِ تَوْقِيفِيَّةِ مَوْقُوفَةٌ عَلَى النَّسِ This is because acts of worship are تَوْقِيفِيَّةِ Meaning that they are suspended. They are suspended. And they are suspended to a, on the basis of a text, meaning they depend upon a text. And that text is either an explicit verse, an explicit verse from the Qur'an, from the Book of Allah, from the mighty Book of Allah, or it is a hadith from the Prophet wasallam, And then following on from these two is al-ijma' is consensus right so either you have a text or you have consensus agreement of the scholars right that this thing here or this action here is an act of worship text or consensus text meaning verse from the quran hadith of the messenger of allah which is authentic or a consensus and the consensus itself a consensus doesn't just exist on its own. It has to be based upon the book and the sunnah and evidence from the book and the sunnah. So when we have an ijma', when we have a consensus, then obviously that, that is a proof in and of itself. right? So the existence of a consensus is proof in itself, irrespective of whether you might know the evidence or not know the evidence. Because... The consensus can only exist if there is a text underlying it, right? It's, it's on the basis of a text. So, 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 so far, all acts of worship, prohibited, um, invalid, uh, except with a text. And the text is the Qur'an or authentic sunnah, or it can be ijma' consensus, because a consensus itself is based upon a text. So then the Shaykh goes on to say, and he mentions a view or an opinion here, which is that even if hadith might be da'if, let's say there's a weak hadith, and this has become common and spread uh, between the scholars, and you know they, they act upon it, then this would be counted as a valid ijma' something that can be used as evidence. However, this is a view or, or, or an opinion, and we do find that there are some uh, details from the ulama uh, and other views. So for example, um, when, when we speak of a weak hadith being used as a proof, some other scholars, they say that this applies not to rulings, not to ahkam, 
but only to fadail fadail right only to only only hadiths which mention the virtues of acts of worship right so this is the statement of uh, imam al-nawawi rahimahullah and so so to explain this you can't use a weak hadith to declare anything to be wajib or mustahab the weak hadith that is acted upon is only whatever relates to rewards or the excellence of actions that already have a basis right so there are some of the scholars who've said that this can be acted upon that's why some of the scholars say that this is in al-fadail fadail meaning the virtues and excellences of the actions not the ahkam you cannot build a ruling a hukam upon a weak hadith and some of the scholars like Sheikh Al-Bani rahimahullah Sheikh Ibn Thaymeen rahimahullah and Sheikh Rabi' as well they're of the view that it's not permissible to act upon any weak hadith at all at all any weak hadith at all um, and there's a statement of Sheikh Al-Islam Ibn Taymi rahimahullah which provides some uh, you know some information on this and he says wala yajuz uh, it is not permissible that in the Sharia that we depend upon weak hadiths which are not authentic nor hasana so, right? so they don't reach the level of authenticity neither sahih nor hasan however he says Ahmed bin Hanbal lakin Ahmed bin Hanbal wa غيره من العلماء جوزوا أن يروى في فضائل الأعمال ما لم يعلم أنه ثابت إذا لم يعلم أنه كذب. So he said that some of the Ahmed bin Hanbal and others from the scholars they made it permissible to narrate a weak hadith regarding the virtues of actions. The virtues of actions. So long as it is not known that it's authentic and so long as it's not known that it is a lie. Right? So then he continues and he says, this is because an action when it is known وَذَلِكَ أَنَّ الْأَمَلْ إِذَا أُلِمَ أَنَّهُ مَشْرُوءٌ بِدَلِيلٍ شَرْعِي وَرُوِيَ فِي فَضْلِهِ حَدِيثٍ لا يعلم أنه كذب جاز أن يكون الثواب حقا. So he says this is because when we have an action which we know it is legislated by a Sharia evidence, right? So basically, let's take an act of worship. Let's say that you know, let's say this is um, uh, the you know, let's say Salatul Duha, for example. We know that. This is legislated that there is authentic texts regarding this, right? So we have an action which is already legislated. Then there is narrated another hadith which speaks of the excellence and the virtue and the reward or something of that nature. And we do not know that hadith to be a lie, right? We do not know it to be... Um, false 
then it's plausible that the reward that it mentions might be true. Might be true. And therefore it can be narrated to mention the reward. Right? This is how the weak hadith can be used. But the weak but the hadith وَلَمْ يَقُلْ أَحَدٌ مِنَ الْأَئِمَّةِ إِنَّهُ يَجُوزْ أَنْ يَجْعَلْ أَنْ يُجْعَلْ أَشَيْءٌ وَاجِبًا أَوْ مُسْتَحَبًا بِحَدِيثٍ دَعِيفٍ Right? However, none of the scholars have said that it's permissible to make something to be wajib or mustahab by way of a weak hadith. And anyone who says that has opposed the ijma'. So, in other words... We are clearly defining when can a weak hadith be used in the view of some of the scholars. Some scholars say we cannot use the weak hadith at all in anything. Some scholars say that let's say there's an act of worship which has already been legislated. The evidence for it exists. It's established. It's either from the Quran, it's from from the Sunnah. And now we come across another hadith and the hadith we do not know it's, we do not know it to be a lie and we do not know it to be authentic or maybe it doesn't reach the level of Hassan and on the basis that you know on the basis of weak memory or something of that nature and um, meaning that the weakness is not severe weakness it's not a lie but it's it doesn't meet the standard because the narrator didn't have a strong enough memory right right so it's not to do with integrity it's not to do with Lying or whatever, but it's to do with weakness of memory. And so, if there if there is a hadith like that reported, that now mentions something about the reward and the excellence and the virtue of an already legislated action, then that hadith can be implemented and used, meaning that you can narrate it to the people, right, to encourage them to do the action. That's in the view of some of the scholars. But it's agreed upon that you cannot use any weak hadith to make anything to be wajib or for or to make anything to be to be mustahab. And that's the speech of Shaykh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah that's in volume 1 of his Fatawa, Majmu Fatawa, volume 1, page 250 and 251. So, after this, the Shaykh then, uh, going back to Shaykh Ubaid, he then says that um, in fact, uh, I forgot to mention that Ibn Hajar himself, rahimahullah, he mentions three conditions to act upon a weak hadith. And uh, he said the first condition is that the weakness of the hadith has to be slight. Right? It cannot be a severely weak hadith, fabricated, maldur, you know, or the narrators are as a liar or there's a, uh, you know, munkati, it's like disconnected or anything like that. But it comes back down to an issue of the narrators not having a high standard of, of memory. So if the weakness is like a slight weakness, this is the first condition. Second condition is that the hadith has to be about something that has already been legislated in authentic texts. The hadith has to be about an act of worship that is already legislated in authentic texts. And then the third condition is that a person must not believe 
that this is an authentic, you know, that this is uh, uh, an authentic statement of the Prophet because it doesn't reach that criterion. He mustn't be led to believe and he must not believe that this is an actual authentic. No, he knows and he recognizes that this is a weak hadith, but because it's about al-fala'il, about the, the virtues and excellences, then, you know, it's permissible to act upon it according to some of the scholars, even though it is not established as being the actual statement of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So, Sheikh Ubaid then uh, continues, and now he speaks about something about, uh, about intention, and he says about the niyyah, he says that, just having a mere intention to do an act of worship is not sufficient in acts of worship right so just for example just to intend prayer that wouldn't be sufficient because there has to be there has to be ikhlas there has to be sincerity because sincerity now distinguishes between a mu'min and a munafiq a believer and a hypocrite because outwardly the hypocrite, he does the same actions, he prays, he fasts, he does all the things that, that a believer does. And so just the mere intent to do an act does not comprise the intention that is acceptable. Rather, it has to be the intent to do the act and to seek the pleasure of Allah and to do it for the sake of Allah. Right? So this is the intention that then makes the action to be an action of worship. Uh, the Sheikh goes on to explain the difference between a believer and a hypocrite is that the believer does acts of worship um, out of taqarrub. He seeks nearness to Allah as opposed to the munafiq, the hypocrite, because he does these actions while not actually believing in these actions. And when the Sheikh is mentioning a hypocrite, he clearly means a hypocrite with the hypocrisy of belief. The, an actual hypocrite in the reality of the affair. So this is now a second point. Uh, that uh, What is the intention? What is the nature of the intention? Uh, the intention is to seek the face of Allah. And we know this from uh, the hadith. Uh, you, know, you know very well the hadith. Uh, that the intention is is to to please Allah and to do things for the sake of Allah not just the mere intent for the action right it's the intent to please Allah and do it for the sake of Allah then the Shaykh goes on to mention that all acts of worship are established upon two principles the first principle is ikhlas Tajridul ikhlas lillahi wahdahu, which is making your action purely and sincerely for the sake of Allah alone, which is what the Shaykh just discussed. And secondly, it is Tajrid al Mutaba'a li Rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wasallam, which is to likewise make your following to be only of uh, to be only of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi and his Sunnah. And it is this second principle to do with acts of worship that we are discussing in today's lesson.
It, it's connected to making mutara'ah, following the messenger of Allah Not worshipping Allah except by way of what the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam came with. So the shaykh says, from here we understand that any person who starts calling the people to an act of worship that is unknown and uncommon, and they've not heard of it from their scholars, nor from the students of knowledge, or from their scholars, then he is requested evidence. Evidence is requested from him. Why? Because what's the basic principle? The basic principle is that every act of worship is prohibited, it is in vain, it is unacceptable, it is invalid, except with a text or consensus. So therefore, when anyone calls the people to any act of worship, because we are operating on this principle, then we demand the evidence. Okay, so what's the evidence for this act of worship that you are calling people to? And so bring, bring the, the evidence. So if he brings the evidence from the Qur'an, from the authentic sunnah, or whether it is, you know, the ijma likewise, then it is accepted it is accepted from him. And then the Shaykh goes on to explain that this action here, this behavior of requesting evidence from people who call others to acts of worship that we don't know, we've not heard of before, we don't know the scholars to mention such things, we don't find them. This is from the distinguishing characteristics of the people of the Sunnah. This is what the people of the Sunnah do because we are followers of the Sunnah. And so we, uh, we, we request evidence from the people uh, to, to validate what they are doing and what they are calling to, especially as it relates to acts of worship, you know, worshipping Allah Azawajal. And so we always have a measure. The measure is an-nas wal-ijma, which is text or consensus. Bring us a text. What's your evidence for this act of worship? Bring us a text. Bring us evidence that this is what the companions understood from this text. And this is how the companions acted upon this text. Bring us the evidence from the Quran or from the Sunnah. Or bring us consensus. Where is the consensus about this act of worship? So the Sheikh says, whatever agrees with the text or with consensus, it is accepted and whatever opposes the text or the consensus, then it is rejected from the one who said it. Even if he is an imam in the sunnah. Even if he's an imam from the sunnah. And the Shia goes on to say, and that's because we know as Imam Malik said, that everyone can have his statement accepted or rejected except the companion of this grave. And he pointed to the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So even uh, the scholars of Ahlul Sunnah, they can't, they can't make a mistake and they can't err. And when they err, the, the error is not accepted and it is corrected obviously with uh, maintaining the honor and the respect uh, of, of this person because he's a person who follows the Sunnah and loves the Sunnah, but he made a slip. As for the Mubtadi, as for the innovator, the person whom we know to be upon deviation and from whose habit is to be upon deviation and who calls to deviation and he makes a slip and he makes a mistake, then his 
mistake is refuted and he's also warned against uh, because he, he's a mubtadi' he's not upon the sunnah and so this is the basic way the shaykh goes on to explain that um, you know how we how we deal with mistakes and as for the alim zillatu alim ghayru maqbula wa in kana imaman indana as for the mistake of a scholar it is not acceptable even if he might be an imam uh, to us then the shaykh goes on to mention speaks about al ittiba' al mutaba'ah which is following and imitating the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and uh, this of course is the second principle of worship the first is ikhlas the first is sincerity and the second is following the prophet sallallahu and guiding oneself by way of him and so this is done by doing what he commanded keeping away from what he prohibited out of seeking nearness to allah believing in the reports that the messenger brought because he is narrating from his lord and uh, you know he's explaining what allah legislated upon his servants so the messenger of allah and then the sahaba how they understood and acted upon the guidance of the messenger and then after them the righteous salaf they are the ones that we turn back to uh, in order to you know to to follow their way after establishing this point the sheikh then goes on to mention another important point which is he speaks about people who revile the companions that anyone who reviles a single companion then his revilement necessitates that we reject whatever this companion brought from the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam right this is what his revilement necessitates this is if a person reviles only one companion how about if someone reviles all of the companions in fact he makes takfir of them he declares them to be disbelievers or he declares them to be sinners this means that we by necessity have to abandon and reject everything they conveyed from the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam because their integrity is not established and this means that we lose the entire religion and the sheikh goes on to say that there are those who try to implement a principle and this principle is that that um the person who reviles the companions he is the one who reviles all the companions he is not to be declared a disbeliever so long as he does not intend to revile the religion and this is a false principle because how can how can someone uh, speak ill of all the companions and not intend to revile the religion at the same time doesn't doesn't make sense right so, but there are some people who try to bring this principle and say the one who reviles all the companions we can't declare him to be a disbeliever unless we know that he actually intended to revile the religion now where did you get this uh, principle from right so in other words it's as if these people are saying that we divide the people into two categories one category who desires to revile the religion by attacking the sahaba and another category who does not intend to revile the religion 
by attacking the Sahaba. Right? And, and, you know, and so this distinction, the Sheikh says, that this is false from two angles. The first angle is that, first of all, the ruling on people's speech and their action is in accordance to what is zahir. Right? We take people at face value. And we judge on the basis of what we actually see from people. And, for example, the Messenger of Allah, when he heard someone say, Ma sha Allah wa shi'it. Whatever Allah willed and what you willed. Right? So he equated the Messenger of Allah with Allah in the issue of will. He said, whatever Allah willed and what you willed. So the Messenger of Allah said, Wayhak, woe be to you. Aja'altani niddan lillah. Have you made me a rival with Allah? So he, the Messenger, took him on the apparent apparentness of what he said. He didn't say, What was your intention behind this? Or what did you intend by this? Did you intend this? Did you intend that? No. He took the apparent obvious. And he reprimanded him for saying this. And similarly, so this is in terms of speech. Likewise, in terms of action, the Messenger of Allah, he saw a man you know, praying and he didn't pray properly. And uh, he then ordered him to pray. He said, go back and pray again because you have not prayed. And the man went and prayed the way he prayed. And then he told him, go back to pray again, you haven't prayed properly. And he went back and he prayed and he told him a third time, repeated it three times, go back. Each time he took him upon his, the dahir of what he is doing. He didn't say, what was your intention behind this prayer? What did you intend? He didn't ask about his intention. Right? He took that, that which is dahir from the man's uh, you know, speech uh, 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 and in the first example and action in the second example of prayer. So this now is a refutation that when someone comes along and speaks with something that is a clear revilement of the Sahaba, by necessity that's a revilement of the religion because the religion did not come to us except that it was narrated by way of the Sahaba, the Quran, the Ahkam, the rulings, the, 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 you know, so on and so forth. So it is a revilement of the religion. The second angle the Sheikh says this principle is false is that it's innovated because nobody has spoken about this before. Who spoke about this before? This is not known to the Sahaba, to the Salaf, that if you, you know, revile Abu Bakr, for example, or uh, Umar or Uthman, and you, you uh, revile them in their integrity, that this is not a revilement of the religion. Who, who, where did you get this from? Right? This is innovated. And the Sheikh gives... A couple of good examples, um, or, or, or a good example here, he says from, from uh, the examples of fiqh. And he says, if a man came and he said to his wife, Anti Talib, you are divorced. So he says, you are divorced. And or, she, or, or he says, hiya Talib, meaning she is divorced, meaning my wife is divorced. So he says, that which is a clear-cut expression of divorce, right? And then he comes along and says, oh, you know what, I, I didn't intend divorce. I didn't intend divorce. 
then you know do we do we accept from this man when he says well look I didn't really intend divorce but by saying you are divorced when he said with explicit words and explicit speech you are divorced what else do you mean by saying you are divorced except that you are divorced how can you now say or oh, I didn't intend to you know it's not acceptable so in the same way when you revile the companions that revilement itself by necessity is revilement of the religion. You can't now say, oh, it wasn't my intention uh, to, to, to speak. You know, no, it's not acceptable. It's false. So this is like the introduction to, to this principle. And just to add a bit more to uh, provide some evidence uh, for this principle, as we said before, that the basic principle is when it comes to seeking nearness to Allah, through acts of worship, the basic principle is al-man wal-hadar wal-rad wal-butlan. Right? It is prohibition, uh, prevention, refutation, rejection, invalidation, falsehood. This is what we start off with as the basic principle. Except what has come in the legislation and has been given permission that we that we act worship. That, that we worship Allah by way of it. And so what are some of the evidences? So, you, so obviously you know you have some evidences from the Quran and the Sunnah. The first evidence is statement of Allah in Surah Shura, the 42nd chapter, verse number 21. Do they have any partners? Or do they have any partners who have legislated for them in the religion that for which Allah has not given any permission. This is a very clear-cut evidence, right? So Allah is asking, do they have any partners alongside Allah who have legislated for them in the religion that for which Allah has not given any permission? Which means legislating acts of worship and making worship either to be wajib or mustahab, that is the sole right of Allah and so you cannot do an act of worship until you have knowledge that Allah has indeed made this to be wajib or mustahab, that it is legislated through the Quran or through the Sunnah. And a statement of uh, the Prophet ﷺ, a well-known hadith, مَنْ أَحْدَثَ فِي أَمْرِنَا هَذَا مَا لَيْسَ مِنْهُ فَهُوَ رَدِّ Whoever introduced into this affair of ours an action which is not from it will have it rejected. Meaning it is mardud and batil. So this is the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha in Sahih Muslim. Uh, and also the hadith, Man amila amalan laysa alihi amruna rad. That whoever did an action that is not in accordance with our affair, then he will have it rejected. So, uh, there are many, many other evidences, but these are just uh, a few, just for brevity of uh, time. And after this, the Shaykh, Hafizullah Ta'ala, he then goes on to mention that how do we know that an action, after it's been legislated, is in accordance with the Sunnah, right? So we've established the first basic principle. All acts of worship are prohibited, they are false, they are invalid, they are not allowed, except with a text. And 
once we know that something is an act of worship, how then do we know after this that it is in agreement with the Sunnah? And here we see that the scholars have basically identified um, five or six five or six uh, conditions which must be attached to oh sorry not must be attached but we find that acts of worship um, have have certain uh, features or have been legislated in certain times or in certain places or in certain numbers or the certain features and qualities of each and every act of worship and the scholars have derived by looking in the Sharia and looking comprehensively that there are basically uh, different types or different categories that acts of worship fall into. Right? And so Sheikh Ubaid is going to mention five of them and this has been mentioned also by Sheikh Ibn Rahimullah. He mentioned six of them. And they are as follows. In other words, the, these are criteria you apply to see whether the act of worship is being done correctly in accordance with the Sunnah after we know that it is indeed a legislated act of worship, right? So the first one, the first type is Al Muwafaqa fi Sabab, which means that the act of worship must agree with the sunnah in the underlying reason or cause. The underlying reason or cause. And the Shaykh gives an example. He says, let's say there are two people and both of them they fast on, they fast on Monday. Right? They fast on the second day of the week. And the first of them, the reason why he fasted on that Monday is because the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu fasted on that day and he used to also command, you know, advise the people to fast, right? So the sabab is it's the day of Monday and in the Sharia, fasting has been tied to it, right? So when you fast, on that day, you are doing it for the shara'i sabab, right? Which, which, which is found in the sharia. But the second person who fasted, what's the reason he fasted? He fasted because that Monday coincided with the 27th of Rajab. And it is claimed that that was the day on which the Messenger of Allah he went on the uh, Al-Isra Wal-Mi'raj. He went on the night ascension. So he fasts on that Monday for that reason. The sabab here is the 27th of Rajab being the night of Al-Isra Wal-Mi'raj as is claimed. And so he fasts for that sabab. This now is false and is rejected and it is an innovation. Because the sababiyya, the, the, the causation behind the act is not established. It is an innovated cause an innovated reason so this is the first um, many acts of worship they have reasons or causes attached to them right so for example you come into the mosque and when you come into the mosque you do tahiyyatul masjid when you enter into the mosque but if you entered into the park for example you don't do tahiyyatul there's, there's no there's, that's not a reason in the sharia 
for you to now, you know, uh, you know, pray two rak'ahs. Right? Similarly, uh, the, the eclipse. Whenever we see an eclipse, it's legislated to pray the eclipse prayer. There are, you know, causes behind certain acts of worship. So basically, if we take many of the acts of worship, we see that they are, that they are attached to a cause, a suburb. And for an act of worship to be correct, it has to agree with the Sharia in, in its cause. Right? This is the first, first issue. The second issue that the Sheikh mentions is that it must be in agreement in terms of the jins, jins the genus, meaning the, the species or the type. And the example of this will make it clear, which is that we know that we have to make the, the sacrifice, uh, you know, al-adha, and the type of animal you use for the sacrifice has been clearly defined in the Sharia. It has to be from Bahimatul An'am, right? So it is basically, it is camels, um, it is cows, and it is, you know, flocks, sheep, you know, goats, things of that nature. So, uh, the Sheikh goes on to say that um, when you make a sacrifice, it has to be from uh, the Bahimatul An'am, and you know, if, if one person he sacrificed with, let's say, a goat or, or, or a sheep or a camel or, or a cow, and the second person sacrificed, let's say, a, a gazelle, or it could be something else, you know, some, some other animal, that would not be accepted from him. Why? Because it now disagrees with the Sharia in terms of the genus of the jinns, right? Of the type or category that the Sharia has specified for that specific act of worship. Right, so that's the second uh, type or second category. The third category is Al-Muwafaqa Fil Qadr Awil Adad Right, which is agreement in terms of the extent or number. So, for example, the Shaykh gives example of the five prayers we know that all the five prayers have a specific uh, number of raka'at, raka'at. And the messenger of Allah, he said, Sallu kama ra'aytumuni usalli, pray as you have seen me pray, which includes all of the details, numbers, times, the kafi, everything. So if someone came along and he said, well, I feel that it's more pious and righteous to add two raka'at to, you know, to, to Maghrib and add another two to, to uh, you know, Dhuhr and Asr and Isha, this would never be accepted from why because this now opposes and disagrees with the sharia in terms of the adad the number likewise if you said well i'm going to fast 20 days in ramadan i'm not accepted or if you said well i'm going to add 10 i'm going to do 40 days and extend into into shawal and you know for, for piety make make it 40 no not accepted right so because the sharia has come with that specific you know with that specific number and so there are many of the acts of worship that, that uh, have the element of number attached to them. Uh, like the Sa'i, for example, or the Tawaf, for example, in, you know, in Umrah and Hajj. Right? So uh, you must stick to the, to the, to the Adad, to the, to the number. The fourth is Al-Mawafaqa fi zaman that 
Many acts of worship are specified in terms of time and must be done within the right time. And the obvious example of that, as you know, would be Hajj. And we know that the, in the days of Dhul Hijjah, there are specific days in which specific things are done. And the ninth day of Dhul Hijjah is, you know, is um, where we stand on Arafah. So if a person came along and, and stood on Arafah on the eighth day, or he stood, for example, on the 18th day, this would not be acceptable because now it doesn't agree with the Sharia in terms of the Zaman, in terms of the Zaman, in terms of the specific uh, time. And the fifth requirement or the fifth category is Al-Makan, Al-Makan, place. And so once again, the very obvious example of that would be Hajj again. Um, Again, day of Arafah, you stand at Arafah. You can't stand in Muzdalifah or in Mina on that day, right? Because it's, it's to a specific place. And the other example that Sheikh Mithaymeen gives is, for example, Al-I'tikaf. Al-I'tikaf is only in the masjid for both men and for women. You can't do I'tikaf in any other place. It has to be in the masjid because that's what's, what, what the evidence indicates, right? So, Al-Makan is a fifth uh, requirement or a fifth uh, category. And finally, Shaykh Ibn Thaymeen, rahimahullah, he mentions a sixth requirement, which is Al-Kayfiyyah. Al-Kayfiyyah. And the example the Shaykh gives, Al-Kayfiyyah, Kayfiyyah means the form or the how, the form, how it's done, right? So the example given by Shaykh Ibn Thaymeen, rahimahullah, is take wudu, for example. Wudu has a specific sequence and you have to follow that sequence. So if you decided, for example, to start with washing your feet first or washing your face first, then this would not be correct. Right? You have to follow the actual sequence because now you have opposed the kayfiyah, the way or the form or the manner. And, and this could be given for Pretty much all the acts of worship, prayer, for example, has a specific kayfiyah, you know, and, um, you know, all the acts of worship uh, is, is the kayfiyah, the form, the way, the manner. It has to agree with the sharia in the, the form, the manner in which it is done uh, in accordance with the sunnah. So the point being in all of this is that it's, it's not the case that every single act of worship... Uh, falls into all six categories. No. Different acts of worship are different. Some of them, for example, let's take Hajj, for example. Uh, the issue of Zaman would apply to it, time. The issue of Makan would apply to it. The issue of Al-Adad, number, would apply to it when, when, when it's, you know, Tawaf and Sa'i. The issue of Sabab, I guess, would apply to it. And the issue of Kayfi would apply some acts of worship, you find that most of these categories apply to it. Other acts of worship, maybe just one or two or, you know, you know might, might apply to it, right? So each act of worship is different. But basically, if we want to be sure that we are acting in accordance with the sunnah and doing the action correctly, then we look at these six things. And also through these six things, we can also figure out you know, where something is, a, is an innovation, is a bid'ah. So, 
you know, if someone comes along and says that, you know, on a Thursday that, uh, you know, you make dua, where did you get this from? Where you, you, you restricted the time now to make dua on a... Where did you get this from? We know that in, in, in the sunnah, that uh, in the last hour of the Friday on a Jum'ah, before Maghrib, it's recommended to make... Yes, we know, we know this is in, 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 in the sunnah, and as are very many other virtuous times to make dua. But where did this come from? That on, on a Thursday you gather together and you make dua, or it could be the Thursday of, you know, first Thursday of every month, or it could be... Whatever it might be. Where would you get this from? All right? So we, we can use these principles to, to uh, identify that something opposes the Sharia and is, you know, as it is an innovation. So uh, this, this really brings us to the end of what Sheikh Ubaid uh, has mentioned here. And um, just to add more on the actual principle, this principle that we are speaking of, that um, the principle of... Uh, everything considered to be prohibited except with a text, then this principle is the short version of it, right? So when we say everything is prohibited as the basic rule, this is the short form. The complete form is that the asal, the foundation in, in acts of worship, is prohibition Except what Allah has legislated. Except what Allah has legislated. Right? That's the complete version. And likewise with the adat that we mentioned, the you know the adat, the, 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 the cultures and the habits and the things, the asal regarding them is that they are lawful. Al asal fil adat al hil. Right? The, the the asal, the basic principle to do with Whatever is like a, a custom and a habit and whatever it might be. And likewise with mu'amalat, it is lawfulness. It is lawfulness. This is the short version and the complete version we simply add. Illa ma Allah, Except what Allah has declared to be unlawful. So everything in the worldly sense of habits, customs, of dealings, of interactions... All of it is, is lawful, except what Allah has made haram. Except what Allah has made haram. And um, yeah, inshallah, that's, that would be sufficient uh, to, to, to mention, inshallah ta'ala. So just to conclude then, and to just to recap what we covered today, uh, the Sheikh is speaking about a principle uh, that the scholars mention, which they've derived from the texts, which is that when it comes to worshipping Allah, we have to start off with the basic principle that everything is false, invalid, prohibited, unlawful, except uh, with a text or with consensus. And if we do not follow this principle, then our religion will become like the religion of the Jews and the Christians. Because the Christians altered their religion. They worshipped Allah upon ignorance. They innovated affairs into the religion that are not from it. And this principle here that all acts of worship, they are prohibited, unlawful, invalid, 
except with a text that when we operate upon this principle uh, as Muslims, as followers of authentic revelation, then we are saved from that uh, misguidance. Um, the Sheikh mentioned also about um, intention, that it's not just the mere intent to do the act, but it's the intent to actually please Allah and seek the face and pleasure of Allah that makes the act to be an act of worship. Otherwise, you could just, you know, habitually and customarily, customarily, you might just, uh, you know, uh, take a shower and, and wash yourself and, and do the wudu first. But your intention is just, I just intended just to uh, wash myself and clean myself. And you clearly intended to do, to, the, to do the deed, right? But the intent that counts here is the intent to, to do it because Allah has commanded it as an act of worship, as an act of nearness and, you know, seeking the face of Allah Azawajal. The Shaykh then mentioned also that this, this niyyah is what distinguishes between the mu'min and the munafiq, the believer and the hypocrite. Uh, the Shaykh then also clarified uh, the two conditions of every act of worship, al-ikhlas, sincerity, and al-ittiba, which is following and imitating the messenger in his guidance. He spoke about reviling the companions, that anyone who reviles the companions, you know, you, you can't go back and, and defend yourself with, with the excuse of intention. It wasn't my intention, right? Because we take it upon the zahir. And when you revile any of the companions, that is clearly a revilement of the religion. The Sheikh falsified that argument, you know, by trying to use the, the intention. And finally, the Sheikh, uh, he explained five uh, categories that acts of worship enter into, and Sheikh Ibn Thaymeen mentioned a sixth one, uh, and these categories are a sabab, a sabab, cause, reason, al-jins, which is the species or the type, and al-qadr, or al-adad, which is the number or the extent, and he mentioned uh, the al-zaman, uh, agreement in time, al-makan, Agreement in place and finally al-kayfiyya, al which is agreement in the form or the manner of performance. Right. So if we meet all of these, then we are acting in accordance with the sunnah uh, after we have already, uh, you know, have evidence that the act of worship we are doing is indeed legislated. So this brings us to, we can uh, come to a close for today's lesson there. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.